The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Our scripture this morning is Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The word of the Lord. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. If you haven't done so already, uh, last week in Revelation 4, the Apostle John, our author, was caught up in a vision to behold the very throne room of God. And we, through the text, hopefully took that journey with him. We did that in order that we might see what he saw, in order that we might hear what he heard. And I pray that we did. What we did, we, we looked along with John and we saw one seated upon the throne whose appearance was like jewels shining forth in an impossible kaleidoscope of rainbow-like beauty. For he is the most beautiful one. We saw his glorious beauty. And before the throne, we saw his power displayed through the fullness of the Holy Spirit, a light as seven torches. We saw thunder and lightning going forth from the throne and echoing and flashing off of this sea that was so under the control of God, it was as smooth as glass, like crystal. 
We, we saw the greatness of his manifold might. He is the Almighty One, the Great One. We saw his glorious greatness. And then around the throne, we saw 24 angelic elders representing the full people of God. We saw four angelic living creatures representing the fullness of creation. And they were all worshiping God for his goodness because there's no other one like him. They sang, holy, holy, holy. And they sang, worthy are you to receive glory because you created all things. And we know that when he created them, he created them good. We heard All creation sing of His glorious goodness. We looked and we listened and we beheld His glory, His goodness, His greatness, His beauty. And looking and listening led us to worship. Or did it? I'm willing to bet that for many of us, probably most of us, especially the further we've gotten away from last week and the time that we spent in Revelation 4, I'm willing to bet that Revelation 4 did not ultimately lead us to worship. Maybe for the moment, but I'm willing to bet it did not ultimately lead us to worship, but to weep. I mean, yes, we... We looked and we saw God upon his throne, but when we got away from that for a moment to step back and look around at the world around us, we realized very quickly it feels like anyone is on the throne but God. There's a a disconnect between our world and the worship of heaven. There's a dissonance. They don't line up. Yes, we, we listened and we heard in God's throne room, we heard the hallowing of his name, but when we listen to the world around us, when we got a chance to step back this past week, listen to the world around us, what we heard was anything but hallowing. What we hear is harrowing news cycle after news cycle. There's a a comedian, I I like the way he says, he says, they should just call the news, here's what's wrong. 6 p.m., here's what's wrong. Local news, here's what's wrong closest to you. There's a disconnect between our world and worship in the throne room of heaven. And so, after looking and listening, I fear that we're not led to worship, but to weep. Because we feel so disconnected from what we've seen and heard. We we don't see the beauty of God's greatness and goodness in our world. We don't look around every day and just see his glory on display. Even though we pray every day for his name to be hallowed, it isn't. Even though we pray every day for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, it hasn't. If I'm honest, Shades, Revelation 4 can make me feel like my prayers aren't heard. Because there's such a disconnect between what I see in glory and what I see here. And I'm praying, I'm praying for that to come here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You taught me to pray that, Jesus. And I pray it day after day after day, and I don't, I don't see it. So Revelation 4 can honestly lead me not to worship, but it could. It could lead me not to pray. 
not to praise. I'm led not to proclaim along with the host of heaven, holy and worthy. I'm led not to worship, but to weep. Shades, I feel like I have felt this reality in so many of your voices this past week. I've had the opportunity to sit with some of you in person, six feet apart. I've had the opportunity to talk with some of you on the phone or through email or text, and there is a consistent heaviness weighing down your hearts because of all that is going on in our world. And, and if, if we are collectively honest, it's hard to worship right now. And when we just look around the room, or you sitting in your home, like, like none of us are in the midst of normal for how we gather and worship as the body of Christ. It's hard to worship right now. We feel much more like weeping. Shades, I, I feel that. And I believe that the Apostle John feels that too right here in Revelation chapter 5. God has us right here in the Word, right on time. Revelation 5 is what your heart, my heart needs. It's what every heart needs right on the heels of chapter 4. Because Revelation 5 calls out the, the, the disconnect between the worship of heaven and our weeping world. It, it calls out that disconnect, it confronts it, and it conquers it. Re Revelation 5 answers our weeping in the here and the now. And it unveils how God has acted to turn our weeping into worshiping now and forever. That's good news, Shades. That's the good news. That's the gospel. See it with me. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. We need to ignore the chapter break. This is the same vision of chapter 4, just continuing on. Chapter 4 was like the, the setting of a play or, or a stage setting. It was describing the scene before us. Chapter 5 is going to be the action. But before the action can begin to unfold, John takes note of one more thing that sets the scene. A scroll. In the right hand of God, that's the hand of his authority and power. There's a scroll. And at first glance, the scroll, it, it looks kind of like a Roman will, like a, a will that somebody would draw up within the Roman Empire. It, it looks like it may have its contents summarized on the outside because it's written on the back. That's what a Roman will would do. It's, it's sealed up with seven seals. A Roman will would often be sealed up with six seals by six witnesses. You put your glob of wax and your mark your imprint on it, sealed it up with six seals, and then the seventh would be the person who, who the will was for. And when they died, you'd break open the seals and unroll the scroll, and, and the contents of the will would be enacted. And maybe some of that symbolism is going on right here, but deeper than any connection that this scroll might have with a Roman will are the connections that it shares with previous prophetic visions. 
prophecies from the Old Testament books of Ezekiel and Daniel. There, we're given specifically two strange details about this, this scroll. And both of these details connect it with Old Testament vision. So first, first the scroll is written on the front and the back. That's abnormal because of the way that scrolls were made. The way that scrolls were made gave them a smooth writing surface on their front or interior, but the back was rough. It was really hard to write on, so you usually did not. But this scroll is. It is full, complete. It reminds us of a scroll exactly like it that was given to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 2, verses 9 and 10. Ezekiel's given a scroll that's written on both sides. And from Ezekiel, we learn that that scroll, it contains a revelation of God's will for his people. The, the, the prophet was to make known the contents of the scroll. Ezekiel's actually told to eat the scroll. It's a symbolic vision. He's not chomping on papyrus. It's, it's a symbol. He's, he's to eat the scroll, to be filled up with God's word, and then proclaim its message. John's going to be told to do the same thing with this scroll once it's unsealed. It's going to take a hot minute, but in Revelation chapter 10, John's going to be told to do the same thing, to take this scroll, to eat it, and to make known its content. It's full and complete revelation. It is, this scroll is the fullest revelation. The fullest revelation of what? That's where the second strange detail about this scroll helps us out. The scroll is sealed with seven Seals. We already know, ad nauseum, that seven is the number of completeness, fullness, totality in apocalyptic literature. And so this scroll is completely, totally sealed up. It's off limits. Those familiar with Old Testament prophecy would immediately think of a place where they'd heard about a sealed up scroll before. You would think of the book of Daniel. Daniel received many, many visions, many prophetic words that even he didn't understand. And, and in Daniel chapter 12, right near the very end of the book, in verse 4, Daniel's told, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. The time of the end. That's the time that the New Testament consistently calls the last days, which we have seen again and again and again. The last days began with the resurrection of Christ and continue until the return of Christ. In other words, the last days is what John lived in. It's what the seven churches in Asia Minor lived in. It's what we live in. It's, it's the church age. Those are the last so Daniel's scroll was to be sealed up until those last days. Then it's to be unsealed for the benefit of God's people, for the, the church, for John, for the first century churches, for us. This is what John is seeing, Daniel's scroll. But it's not just Daniel's scroll, it's Ezekiel's scroll. John is seeing a prophetic combination of images. We've already seen this happen before. Remember last week, the four living creatures? They look kind of like Isaiah's seraphim, kind of like Ezekiel's cherubim. John does this, or rather, God does this all the time, takes up all of these Old Testament symbols and mixes them together to give us a full and complete picture. John is seeing a prophetic combination of Daniel and Ezekiel's scrolls. Why? To communicate, this scroll contains the fullness 
of God's will. That's Ezekiel. Written on front and back, contains the fullness of God's will for his people in the last days. That's Daniel. That's what this scroll is. The fullness of God's will for his people in the last days. Which, we already know a little bit about what that is. As we went through the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, we were told again and again what God's will for his people is in the last days. His will is that they are to conquer. This scroll must show us how. How are we going to conquer our struggles with idolatry and immorality? That's in the scroll. How are we going to conquer our suffering, both persecution and our persecutors? That's in the scroll. How is God going to keep every promise we saw Him make in those letters to those who conquer? In other words, how is He going to fully and finally bring His kingdom to earth so that His will is done here just like it is in heaven? That's in the scroll. To put it simply, this scroll is the fullest revelation of how God's people will conquer and how His kingdom will come. It's the simplest sentence I got for you of what's in this thing. The scroll is the fullest revelation of how God's people will conquer and how His kingdom will come. We might call it the scroll of the conquering kingdom. In other words, this is our hope. That... This is the answer to our prayer, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name everywhere. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is all things made new. This is every wrong righted, every tear wiped away, every injustice corrected, every hurt healed. This, this is new creation. This is the consummation. This is the reconciliation of all things in Christ. This is the ultimate good news of the gospel. The scroll's sealed. And it's in God's right hand because only He has the authority and the power to bring about His will. But He sealed it up as if He is waiting for another to open it. But only He can. And in verse 2, an angel asked the question that has to be forming in all of our minds at this point. Look at it. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who? Who is worthy? Who's worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No one had the power. No one had the authority. The call went out to the entire cosmos. Who's worthy to break the seals and open the, the scroll? And the answer is deafening silence. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no created being. And our deafening Silence is finally broken, but only by the sound of John's weeping. Look at verse 4. And I began to weep loudly. The Greek here indicates this is deep, guttural sobbing, like you would do over the death of a, of a loved one. 
began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John weeps. Why? It, is it because he, he's not going to get a personal peek into how God's kingdom is going to come? No. Emphatically, no. He weeps because he knows that if this scroll doesn't get opened, God's kingdom doesn't come at all. When, when the seals on a, a Roman will were broken, it wasn't just so that the will could be read, it was so that its contents could be enacted, executed. If this scroll isn't open, then its contents aren't enacted or executed. There's no coming conquering kingdom. We're left with nothing but Rome-like kingdoms with all their corrupt leaders. Are you weeping yet? If you look around the world at the systems of government all over the face of our planet and all of our leaders, and if that's all there is, wouldn't we weep like John? If this scroll isn't open, there's no coming new creation. God's name will never be hallowed here. We're left with nothing but harrowing news cycle after news cycle, and that is the only cycle we will ever know. Are you weeping yet? If this scroll isn't opened, there's no Christ, there's no cure, there's no gospel, there's no hope. Nothing but grim, unyielding despair. That's what the famous atheist Bertrand Russell said that he built his life upon. Said that was the foundation of his life and it should be the foundation of everybody's life. Grim, unyielding despair. At least he was honest. If there is no Christ, there is no hope. And this is why, this is why, after seeing the glory of God upon his throne, John is not worshiping but weeping. Because there is a disconnect between the world in which he and the seven churches live and the worship that he sees in heaven. There, in heaven, God rules on his throne. But John looks around and here the churches are ruled by the Roman Empire. There, in heaven, God is seated. He has conquered. But here, in the Roman Empire, the church is being conquered. And if that scroll remains closed, that will always be the case. Shades, is this not what makes us weep as well? Does, does it not ever feel to you like God's kingdom is never going to come, no matter how many times we pray for it to? That, does it not seem like, like God's name will never be hallowed, no matter how much we proclaim His praise? Does it not seem like the scroll will forever remain closed? That's what makes us weep, which is why we need verse 5. Verse 5 announces to us the gospel reality that yes, we weep, but we only weep until we witness the worthiness 
of the Lamb. This is the first of two gospel realities that I want us to see this morning. First gospel reality. We weep until we witness the worthiness of the Lamb. Look at verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. That's your gospel shades that you get to announce to the world. Weep no more. You have that news. Why? John keeps going. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He can open the scroll, shades, like the fullest revelation of how God's people will conquer and how God's kingdom will come, there is one who is worthy to take it. He has the authority to do that and he can open it. He has the power to do that. I thought that only God had the authority and the power to open this scroll. So who is this one? Verse 5 told us, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's a heck of a callback right there. you got to go all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 49 in order to know exactly what's being talked about right here. In Genesis 49, we are prophetically told that from the tribe of Judah will come a promised king like a lion. And throughout the Old Testament, we learn more about this lion king coming through the tribe of Judah. He will be a savior who will conquer as a warrior and set up God's kingdom forever. And eventually, here's the deal, a king does come through the line of Judah. His name is David. But you read his story and it becomes clear pretty quickly, he's not this coming savior. So we must look to one of his descendants must be this promised coming lion-like warrior king who will conquer. However, you keep reading the story and we get into real trouble because David's family tree gets cut off. People are taken into exile. The Davidic line of kings cut down like a tree. But then in Isaiah chapter 11... The prophet says that through, that he says, even though David's family tree is but a stump, the root is still good. And from the root will spring a new shoot. The promised lion like Savior will come and conquer. That's who we're seeing in Revelation 5 and verse 5. Because he's not just the lion of the tribe of Judah, we're also told he is the root of of David. And we are told he has come as our warrior and he has conquered so that he is worthy to open the scroll. He has the authority and the power to lead God's people to conquer, to make God's kingdom come. I don't know about you, but I want to see this lion-like conquering king. So we turn with John to look at him in verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Seven horns and 
seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. We look for a lion. We see a lamb. This is going to happen again and again throughout Revelation. We've actually already seen it happen once in chapter 1, but John's going to hear something, a description of something, and he's going to look and see something that's very different than what he heard. And often what is happening is what he hears is an Old Testament description of a prophecy of something that would happen or something that would come to pass, and then he beholds it comes to pass in the most surprising of ways. Old Testament prophecies of that lion-like conquering king I led a lot of people to think that what was coming was a traditional warrior who would lay waste to his enemies by killing them in order to conquer and what is revealed to John and us is that the lion did come but not like anyone thought he would as a lamb the lion is a lamb. It's not that he's not a lion and he's just a lamb. He's both. He is a lion-like lamb and he is a lamb-like lion. The lion is the lamb. If that's not confusing enough, look at the crazy way that he has conquered, not by killing his enemies, but by being killed by them. We're told that he is standing as slaughtered. That's, that's a better translation of the Greek than the ESV gives you right there. It says that he's standing as though. No, 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 no. It's not like he appears this way. The literal translation is he's standing as slaughtered. I don't even like the word slain. That sounds too clean. That's not the word. The Greek word is a brutal one. He's standing as slaughtered. This is sacrificial language. This, this lamb has been sacrificed. Yet he stands. He lives. This is nothing less than a death and a resurrection. I love the Greek word for resurrection, anastasis. Literally it means to stand again. He has been slaughtered and yet he stands again. This is how he conquered. Not by the sword, but by sacrifice. He conquered sin by sacrifice. He conquered death through resurrection. In other words, he has conquered everything that stands in the way of God's coming kingdom, sin and death. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and bring God's coming kingdom. He's got the authority to do that. He's got the power to do that. He's got the authority and power to do what God alone can do because this lion-like lamb is God. That is so clear here through the way that John talks about him. Just look at where this lamb is standing. Did you see that? Look back in verse 6. Where is he standing? Between the throne and the four living creatures. Or a better translation is in the midst of the throne. Do you, do you remember from last week how we said that the throne alone is in the center of all reality? Everything else is either around the throne, before the throne, or from the throne. God alone is at the center. But here's the lamb. Not around, not from, not before, in the midst of the throne. 
He is at the center that belongs to God alone because he is God. We see that not just in where he stands, but just look at him and what he looks like. He's got seven horns. In in apocalyptic literature, horns are symbols. Remember, apocalypses are highly symbolic. Don't try to make this literal. Jesus is not literally a ba-ba lamb with a coat of wool. It's just telling us something about him. And horns in apocalyptic literature often symbolize power. Specifically, usually kingly power. Rulership. And this lamb has got seven of them. The number of completeness, fullness, totality. He has total power, complete might. He is the Almighty, the sovereign, he's omnipotent. This lion like lamb is God. He's not just a lamb that died in weakness and sacrifice. It took all power to do that. He's a lion, too. He has all power. This lion like lamb is God. Not only does he have seven horns, he's got seven eyes. That's a symbolism that we already saw last week with living creatures who had eyes all over them and eyes in apocalyptic literature are a symbolic way of saying that you see everything. This lamb has seven of them. In other words, total, complete, perfect sight. These eyes are actually further called for us. These seven eyes are called the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The full, remember the seven spirits of God, is the fullness of the Holy Spirit in all his power. So far, we have only seen that before the throne of the Father is seven torches being the seven spirits of God. The Father is connected to the Spirit in all of his power, but so is this Lamb. Spirit in all of his power is on this Lamb, and through it, this Lamb has total knowledge of everything, total wisdom. He sees everything, he knows everything, he's perfectly wise, he's omniscient. The Lamb is God. We are seeing a beautiful picture of our God who is triune. Father upon the throne, Son is the lion-like Lamb, bound and bonded together by the full deity of the Holy Spirit. Our God, three in one. The Lamb is God, and we know his name. His name is Jesus. I think think one of the things that is clearly being communicated to us right here is you want to see God. God who dwells in unapproachable light, who John can only describe as looking like the brightness of jewels. You want to see Him? Look at Jesus. When we look to the throne of God to see God, we see Jesus. Jesus is God who made himself known by taking on flesh, dying a sacrificial death for our sin on the cross, rising again. Our kingly lion has made himself known as the conquering lamb. What a crazy way to conquer. By being killed. That does not look like powerfully conquering to the world. That looks like weak defeat. Thus, to the world, it doesn't look like a wise way to conquer. It looks like foolishness. It looks lamb-like after all. Lambs look weak and foolish. But our lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. 
real power and real wisdom. He is lion-like after all. St. Paul says it best in 1 Corinthians 1.24, Christ is the power of God, those seven horns. He is the wisdom of God, those seven eyes. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We confess that the greatest lion is the lamb, Jesus. Shades, do, do you see this gospel reality? We weep until we see the worthiness of the lamb. Because when... When we see that, that he took the path that looked weak, that, that looked like foolish defeat, but he revealed it to be powerful, wise, conquering. When we see that, we can trust that he is leading us down the same path that will take us to the same place. In other words, church, as we struggle and suffer in this world, it may look like weak foolish defeat, but by the power and wisdom of Christ, he is leading us to conquer as a part of his kingdom. Seeing that, seeing him, is what turns our weeping into worship. See that happen in verse 8. We've been weeping with John, and for the rest of the chapter, it's nothing but worship flowing out. Verse 8, And when he, the Lamb, had taken the scroll... The four living creatures, remember they represent all of creation, and the 24 elders, remember they represent all of God's people, they fell down before the Lamb. Each of the elders holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. When he had taken the scroll. In other words, when we knew we weren't hopeless anymore. When we knew the scroll would not remain forever closed. When we knew the world would not always be broken. When we knew the corrupt won't always rule. Pandemics won't always rage because that scroll will not always be closed. There is guaranteed hope that God's people will conquer and that God's kingdom will come because the Lamb has taken the scroll. That hope is in His hands. The very one who conquered through suffering will empower us to do the same. The Lamb who has conquered guarantees our conquering. He's taken the scroll. It's going to get unrolled. Do you see that? The Lamb who's conquered guarantees our conquering. That scroll's going to get unrolled. We're going to conquer. God's kingdom's going to Come, this turns our weeping into worship. We can heed the command of the elder in verse 5. Weep no more. We can join with the elders in verse 8 and worship in a way that bears witness to the worth of the Lamb. That's the second gospel reality we need to see finally this morning. Second gospel reality. We, we may weep until we see the worthiness of the Lamb, but once we do, then the second gospel reality, we worship bearing witness to the worth of the Lamb. We worship. Once we see His worth, then our weepings turn to worship. We worship, bearing witness to the world of the worth of the Lamb. How? How do we do that? The 24 elders are showing us. Look again at verse 8. 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Remember, these 24 elders represent us. Showing us how we worship and show the worth of the Lamb to the world. 
fall down, holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. I think that right here we see three ways that worship. I I, I think we see three ways we worship in order to bear witness to the worth of the Lamb. Namely, praise, prayer, and proclamation. The three things we said that our weeping would lead us away from. Our worship leads us to them. Praise, prayer, and proclamation. First, praise. Each of these 24 elders is holding a harp. Now, this is one of those really unfortunate images that has been hijacked from Revelation to give us all a Saturday morning cartoon vision of what heaven must be like with, you know, we're sitting around with halos and fluffy wings on cumulus clouds and strumming this really boring harp music. Okay, listen, when you read about a harp in Scripture, don't think about, like anyone who plays the harp, I apologize, but don't think about a huge modern harp that you have to like sit down to play that was only ever brought out at like boring black tie situations. That's not what we're talking about here at all. An ancient harp was a small handheld instrument, and it was an instrument of joy. New Testament, DA, uh, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson uh, compares it to a banjo. Like, try and be sad listening to a banjo. Like, this is, this is like foot-stomping, hand-clapping stuff. This is what you play when you want to party. In fact, this afternoon, go read Psalm 137. Psalm 137 was written when the people of God were being taken away from their homeland and into exile in Babylon. And it's written as they reach the Kabar River. They're crossing over those waters away from their homeland into Babylon. And they say that there at the Kabar River, they hung up their harps on trees. This is an instrument of joy. How can we sing a joyous song to the Lord, a joyous song of Zion in a foreign land? How can we sing joyous songs now? We have no king. We have no kingdom. And they wouldn't. We wouldn't until the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, Jesus, comes and conquers as our lamb standing as slain and he takes the scroll that he may open it and come again as our king bringing the kingdom now that is a time for us to take the harps that were hung up on the trees to take them down that's the image here the harps are coming down because the king and the kingdom have arrived and it is a time for praise that bears witness to his worth shades your genuine joy-filled praise of jesus witnesses to the world of his worth especially when it's lifted amidst struggling and suffering especially when it's lifted amidst pain and persecution especially when it's lifted amidst a pandemic shades your Praise points the world to the worth of the one you have seen. Your worship bears witness to the worth 
of the Lamb. And not just through praise, but also through prayer. Notice in verse 8, the elders aren't just holding harps, they also each have a golden bowl full of incense, which we are told are the prayers of the saints. That's a pretty consistent image throughout Scripture. Incense going up in worship represents prayers going up. Do you see what's being communicated right here? These are the prayers of the saints. These are your prayers. Every prayer that you have ever prayed for God's kingdom to come, for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every prayer you have prayed for the hallowing of God's name, for justice to be done, for righteousness, for mercy. Every time you cry out for the King to come and bring His kingdom, not a single one of those prayers is lost. Not a single one unheard. They constantly inhabit the presence of God and they smell sweet to Him. And not a single one of them will go unanswered. They fill His throne room and in response, in answer to those cries from His people, He takes the scroll and opens it to bring the kingdom that you have prayed for. He will right every wrong, wipe away every tear, respond to every cry for justice. His name will be perfectly hallowed. His will will be perfectly done. His kingdom will come. And shades, you bear witness to the worth of that king and his kingdom right now when you cry out in prayer. You bear witness to this world of the worth of the king and the kingdom that is to come. You do that not just through prayer, not just through praise, but finally through proclamation. Through proclamation. In a way, praise and prayer are both types of proclamation. But when the 24 elders sing their new song, we see a kind of proclamation that's even more explicit. Get it one more time. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed, purchased a people for God from every tribe, language, people, nation. Remember what I told you about the number four? And when we see things that are fourfold, it has to do with the totality of the world. We will see this four pattern right here repeated seven times. It is not an accident. John does masterful things with numbers throughout this book. It's a picture of Christ's purchase of his full people from every corner of the globe. He purchased people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Scroll's going to get open. Kingdom's going to come. They shall reign on the earth. This is Exodus language. It's from Exodus 19. If you remember in the Exodus, God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, and he did it by the blood of a lamb. Passover lamb sacrificed in their place. And he brought them out. And in Exodus 19 and verse 6, he tells them why he brought them out. To make them a kingdom of priests. That's something that Israel never achieved. 
Because all of that was a shadow pointing forward to the greater coming reality of the one true Passover lamb, Jesus. Sacrificed to bring all of God's people out of slavery to sin. Not just some from Israel, but from every tribe and language and people and nation. They all get that title that they are going to be a kingdom of priests. They all get that title because they are all united to the one who embodied true Israel, Jesus. And when you are united to Jesus, you become a part of his people, a part of true Israel. You become a part of this kingdom of priests. And do you know what a kingdom of priests do? Priests represent God. That's what a priest does. They represent God. And we are a whole kingdom of them. As Christians, we don't have priests. We are priests. We only got one great high priest, and his name is Jesus, not Jonathan. Priests represent God. We're a whole kingdom of them. We are priestly representatives of God's kingdom to the world. And we go to them proclaiming the same gospel good news that was announced to us in Revelation 5.5. We go to the world announcing, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. We go to every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, Proclaiming that Christ has conquered. Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. That is the people that He purchased that He will bring all the way home to heaven. And we, as His representatives right now, strive to represent that people. We strive to... To model this, there is no place in the gospel for any type of supremacy or racism. The gospel kills it because Christ purchased people from every tribe, every language, every tongue, every nation. And we are meant to witness to that reality. Shades, we cannot witness to that reality by what we don't do. Lots of people, when you start to talk about racism or supremacy or things like that, they like to talk about what they don't do. I I don't do racist things. I don't have a racist attitude. I don't this, I don't that. I don't treat people this way or that way. Shades, we cannot bear witness to this reality by what we don't do. We're called to bear witness to this reality by what we do. Go! To every tribe, language, people, and nation, proclaiming and demonstrating that Christ has conquered. And we go praying that He will bring all of His people into His kingdom and praising Him until the day comes that He does exactly that. This is how our worship bears witness to the world of the worth of the Lamb. Shades, this morning, as, as you look at the world. It may make you weep, but turn your gaze, turn your gaze on the lion-like lamb who has conquered. Turn your gaze, your eyes towards the worth of Christ. We weep until we witness the worth of the lamb. And once we witness witness his worth, once we see that he will open the scroll, he will conquer, his kingdom will come, then our weeping turns to worship and bears witness to the world of his worth.
Then we are led to praise. Then we are led to pray. Then we are led to proclaim. Then we are led from weeping to worshiping. May we join in heaven's song until, like John, we get to see all of creation join in and sing along. Look at how he closes, verses 11 to 14. John says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads. That's 10,000 times 10,000. It's meant to be innumerable. And thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. A sevenfold doxology that is not by accident. It is full. He's, he's completely and fully worthy of all praise. And he's not just worthy of all the praise of heaven that we just saw in myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels. He is worthy of the worship of all creation. Verse 13. And I heard... Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Do you notice something different about that song? We got two songs in Revelation chapter 4, both to him who sits on the throne. We've had two songs so far in Revelation 5, both to the lamb. And now they come together in one final song in worship of the God who sits on the throne, who is the lamb, who is the Holy Spirit, worship of the triune God, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen. And the elders fell down. And worship. Shades, let us do the same. Let us say amen. Let us fall down. Let our weeping be turned into worshiping that bears witness to the worth of the Lamb. Amen.